1: At greenlight.com slash ACAST.
3: Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, is the Daily Telegraph correcting a glaring error by sending its subs back in house? Jeffrey Katzenberg throws in the towel at Kuibi, and ITV sets its sights on streaming. Again, Plus, as the Twitterati spots far-right tattoos that the programme makers didn't, is it the chop for Sky History's new woodworking format? And in the Media Podcast quiz, we pay tribute to the veteran regional news presenters that the BBC sent packing. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And making her Media Podcast debut, it's former Press Association HuffPost UK and ITV News Video Exec now founder of Bird Lime Media, Dawn Kelly. Hi, Dawn.
0: Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on.
3: Well, absolute pleasure. You left behind a string of salaried jobs that I just read (laughs) out. You started your own production company, then you got pregnant, then there was a pandemic. How's it been working out for you?
0: It's actually been all right. It's been okay. I started the company two years ago, so it's not like I gave a salaried job up in the midst of it all. There was a bit of establishment sort of going on with the company already. And it's just been a big pivot. I think it's been a pivot anyway, because of the pandemic, but then throw a newborn baby into the mix. (laughs) It's been an interesting six months, that's for sure.
3: But were you working from home anyway, before all of this happened?
0: I was. um, But I was probably working from home, I would say about 50% of the time. And then I was out doing filming jobs and shoots and consultancy for sort of the other 50%. So it was like a real lovely, happy balance of, you know, working in my living room in my pyjamas when I wanted to, but then also like having a proper job and going out and meeting people and filming, getting people's stories and stuff. Working from home is pretty different from working from home in a pandemic, I think.
3: But I wonder actually if the change being less in a way than it would have been had you been based in a in a big um you know glass and mirrors type office is actually easier to deal with than it would be for some people who worked for some of those big broadcasters
0: i mean the thing is is that if you love going into an office every day and then this happens to you if you want to escape your partner or your you know your dog or your baby or whatever it is and then you go into a pandemic you're i guess you're just a bit screwed aren't you whereas you know, I quite liked being at home, but that's not to say that it hasn't sort of stifled a bit of my creativity. It's a bit harder to sort of like dig deep and and be creative when I'm in the same room with the same people every day. But yeah, I think it's probably easier for us freelancers who have worked at home.
3: Well, someone whose landscape has dramatically changed, uh, also joining us today back on the show, radio consultant and director of Creative Media Partners, Paul Robinson. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ollie. Nice to be back. Now, I say dramatically changed because like the running joke for your introductions on the show was you've always just jetted back from some glamorous locale. You know, you've been to Japan, you've been to Russia, whatever. Now it's like you're in your house. What's changed in Paul Robinson land?
2: Oh, well, it's a disaster because all my frequent flyer cards are going the wrong colour. They're all going sort of (laughs) silver to blue, you know, it's a disaster. No, I, I do miss going to the airport. I mean, what I miss actually is all that time when you're in taxis or hanging around in lounges, or even on the plane, that sort of solitary time where you can actually get down and think, or write, or edit, or do you know other bits of stuff. So, I've got to try and fit all that work round uh, without the the plane time. But uh, no, it's been strange. I mean, what I have found that I've really loved is not actually having to you know go to offices and travel in London because in fact so much time is saved. You know, I can be at my desk at eight o'clock and I haven't got to go somewhere for a meeting. Uh, you've got back-to-back Zoom
3: calls, which can be, I think, quite tiring, but I'm saving a lot
2: of time running between
3: meetings. So is it a different kind of media that you're consulting about, though, as well? I mean, consumption habits are changing, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've, we've lost some business. I mean, we've lost, you know, a lot of the event business. We used to do a huge amount, for example, for IBC and, and various other events. So we've moved into some new areas, and it's been quite interesting, you know, some real sort of learning curves. We've been in quite a lot of digital training, some mentoring and training particularly for medium-sized companies who want to scale up. So this is, you know, government-sponsored initiatives. Uh, So we've been organizing workshops and using interactive software so you can do, you know, virtual breakout rooms and feedback sessions and stuff. So really, really interesting. Um, And that's becoming quite a big part of our business now. It's grown very, very quickly.
3: Yeah, it's amazing how some people don't have those, like, really basic skills. And I include myself in that. You know, you might think I'm quite digitally proficient, but because I've never had a proper job, I don't know how to use PowerPoint, for example. Whereas now, if I'm giving a presentation, it's digital and people expect you to be able to show up slides. And I literally don't know how to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just one of those things you
2: pick up. It's not it's not hard PowerPoint. I mean, we're using a thing called Mirror where you can put um, virtual yeah. Post-it notes up, for example. Yeah. You can send people off to breakout groups. They can come back. They can then come in and pitch their ideas. They can then go away and report them. So it's a bit like replicating situation where you'd be in a real event. um, It's as close as you can get to that. And and so far, it seems to be working really, really well.
3: And also finally, joining us, someone who definitely doesn't require any digital training, it is the editor of Newsweek International, Mr. Alex Hudson is here. Hello, Alex. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Now, since we last spoke, you have also launched your own personal email newsletter, uh, which is called Everything Popular is Wrong. I mean, that strikes me as quite a steampunk thing to do. Uh, <laughs> what I, with all of these digital skills under your belt, would you choose that medium, email newsletters, in a world of e- TikTok and Instagram stories?
4: As we have discussed, like it's it's. I'm obsessed with appointments and I'm obsessed with communities and I'm obsessed with the idea that people develop relationships with people like um, people who will listen to you, Ollie, on your many, many podcasts will consider you a really, really close friend. Right. And I'm sure you get those emails saying, hey, you've helped me through this. Hey, you've answered this question. Hey, you've done that. How you develop those personal relationships and a newsletter is a small bit on the way, like the, everything popular is wrong is also going to end up as a podcast, right? You can come on and everyone give me something that's popular that's not wrong. Everything popular is somehow wrong in the world. Um, think about it. There's nothing except chips and chips even cause obesity. So it's, it's a problem and it's... Giving people stuff in their inbox, if there are a few brilliant, like Joe Fertes writes a brilliant newsletter each week. Um, The New Statesman, The Morning Call, does a brilliant newsletter each morning. Uh, The Politico's playbook is is a must read each morning. And so this is also, I don't want to be sub-edited, just have freedom to write nonsense. Just would be so lovely. So I'm trying to do that once a week which I haven't sent one in 11 days now, so I need to get on that like the second I finish this recording this.
3: I mean, I've been thinking about your question for the last minute, and my answer would be the Antiques Roadshow. That's popular, that's not wrong. Uh, d- depends on your view of capitalism and the, and the idea of worth, right? And so... Yeah, no, I mean, you're taking Fiona Bruce's opening monologue almost uh, verbatim here. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, all right, let's get on with the agenda at hand and starting with the press, uh, because The Telegraph is bringing it subbing back in-house... Uh, Alex, what's happening there, and do you think it's significant? The Telegraph shifted out; it's a lot of its sub-editing out to PA
4: Media in mid 2017, uh, and it made around 20 redundancies at the time. And now, what it's doing is bringing it back in-house. And it's it seems confusing time, right? If everyone is working remotely, so the PA office was somewhere in Yorkshire, mm. and so if if someone's if everyone's already working remotely, it seems a strange time to bring everyone back into an office now, but the more people working in national newsrooms, the better.
3: So I think I think it's I think it's broadly a good thing. But is it an admission yeah. of failure though? I mean, what went wrong with the experiment, do you think?
4: They're a bespoke team within PA now anyway. So it's already bespoke telegraph little team. So I don't understand why they wouldn't just shift those in-house. That doesn't make any sense to me. But if the telegraph are really pushing on this this subscription model, which they say they are really, really hard, the more community spirit and like we were talking about in the intro right the idea of loyalty and the idea of community spirit the more people you have in the office that that say very proudly they're telegraph journalists and they're telegraph sub-editors and also the reason that they can do it is that a lot of sub-editors now will start producing content so if you look at the digital model right is it is a person reversioning a story that the independent wrote first and then that appears in every single paper about an hour afterwards is that job done by a sub-editor Or is that job done by a reporter? And that's a really blurry line in the digital world. So chances are these people, once they've bought Bracken House, will start getting bylines.
3: Yeah, and that was arguably the short-sighted thing about outsourcing the subs in the first place, Dawn, is that career ladder thing. You know, just just by very nature of the fact they're in a different building in Yorkshire, never mind the fact they've technically got a different employer, you're not going to see that progression. You're cutting off a talent stream to yourself.
0: It's a a weird one, isn't it? Because like it makes sense like PA as a service makes a lot of sense um, for lots of different people but you do lose like the control over your content when somebody else does it for you whether you know even if they were in the same company but like a completely different building like you lose some of that control so being in a different company I think that yeah you lose control over your your content and and what you're able to sort of shape in-house even though PA does offer an amazing sort of service and especially given that it's a dedicated team that are um, you know putting this stuff together or subbing this stuff for the um, Telegraph I've worked on both sides I've worked for PA you know creating video content for everyone all across the country and I've also worked for in-house brands like HuffPost or whatever and I think that when you're trying to service audiences, you have to be able to be agile and adapt and change to what they need. And I just don't think that you're able to do that um, as effectively as maybe you want to, if another company is providing that service for you, however dedicated they are.
3: They're also, Paul, The Telegraph, a quality brand, a heritage brand, or at least they want their readers to think of them in that way. And you know, it's, it's been an issue across all the broadsheets, really, hasn't it? Possibly with the exception of the FT, which seems to me very rarely to make mistakes. But it's, it's been the case that you can pick up the Times or the Telegraph or the Guardian, and even just a layperson can find a load of just grammatical errors in it, um, because they've been cutting subs all over the place. And if they want to cultivate audiences who want quality, they need to not have fuck-ups in the paper.
2: Yeah, look, I do think you expect a quality broadsheet not to have as many mistakes as it does have. And I think the number of mistakes has increased and it's it doesn't sort of kill it for you, but it's very irritating when you're reading something when there's bad grammar or very blatant uh, errors in spelling. I think the other aspect of all this is whether it's about flexibility. It doesn't actually say it, but I imagine they've actually taken this move at the end of the contract. So they've chosen not to renew the contract. And from a financial point of view, you could argue that maybe they've done this for future flexibility. If you commit to another contract, then you have a commitment, you know, a financial commitment to an organization for a period of time. If you bring people in-house without saying terrible doom and gloom, you have got more opportunity, if you want to, to reshape your organization at future date. And look, all all companies now thinking about what the future is going to be, what their revenue is going to be, what their business model is going to be, and inevitably looking at cost reduction. So it may well be also financially motivated.
3: So it actually could be cheaper bringing people back in-house. Like The, the assumption was that they went to PA to cut costs.
2: Yeah. I mean, cheap, yes, exactly. Cheaper bringing them back in-house. You get the benefits of synergy and working together. But also, if you want to in future lose people, it's far easier to lose individuals than to lose a whole contract where you've got to terminate and probably you'd have a penalty for terminating early. So there'd be a big cost. So I think they're thinking about it from a future flexibility if there are further redundancies required.
3: And Alex, a round of redundancies at the Evening Standard as well. Hardly surprising maybe, given that their business model is reliant on commuters who aren't there to pick up the paper. <laughs>
4: I I think the evening standard one is a tricky one. So the standard are have announced another 16 or so, somewhere between 16 and 20 cuts. And their plan is to cut around 40% of the newsroom staff. So around 115 staff in total. And that's like 69 in the tutorial, which is a huge, I think. So it's... And... Despite the forty percent cut, they still have two editors. So they've got Emily Sheffield as editor and, and George Osborne as editor. So you know, make of that what you will. Um, and of course, it's, of course, it's COVID related. Of course, they I think they're they it's cut by two thirds their circulation. But they already made a loss of eleven point five million in twenty eighteen. They made a loss of twelve million in twenty nineteen. So it's not just COVID. And they were already organising this restructure before COVID came about. And so. The standard, if you look at its closest competitor, Metro, who I spent many years with, it's around half the size in digital traffic as, as Metro's closest competitor. And it doesn't have any more loyalty. Its pages per visit are around the same. And so if people stop reading the paper, of course, it's going to struggle. And Would you, you ask-
3: attribute any of that to their strategy, though? Because one of the reasons Metro is more popular online, why well, I don't need to tell you this, obviously it was your job, but one of the reasons Metro is <laughs> more popular online is they're very much uh, a sort of national-facing brand, aren't they? Um, whereas the Evening Standard is really embracing the fact they're from London. In the same way as City AM is a business paper for people in London, was that a mistake? I mean, you never could have predicted the pandemic.
4: I, I have had meetings with the Standard, which I definitely cannot talk about. But yeah, of course they're getting it wrong. Um, of, of course, their their job is to be this... like. Firstly, having the evening in a, in a word in a newspaper is old-fashioned. So the standard is a great name. The, the evening standard is not. Um, trying to develop appointments is very, very good. And when you ha- when you think about a newspaper, you really clearly see what they are. You know, Guardian very clearly has one view. The Telegraph, like for all of its faults, you can really... You can almost hear the Telegraph when you're reading a story. With the evening standard, it struggles in in, in that way. And so... You have to look digital, you have to look and you have to look towards loyalty, but no one will pay for a free newspaper. And that's where the Evening Standard struggles more than any of its competitors. Amal Rajan has been really, has written a load of good pieces on this for the Beeb.
3: And Dawn, one of the redundancies there includes the executive producer of video, Mm -hmm. which is the world that you're in, um, and some of the video journalists as well. So what does that mean for all the newspapers that are pivoting towards video as a way of producing ad revenue?
0: Gosh, I think it means that no one's safe in a pandemic, firstly, and you just have to be really clever. I'm not saying that the Evening Standard haven't been clever necessarily with their video strategy, but you have to really sort of build a strategy on like reduced teams, like the teams that I've worked on before, you know, it's been really tiny teams that have packed a huge punch because you've upskilled people in different areas um you know you make a pivot towards not just video but to podcasting um and and I can't really talk to the structure of the evening standard team but my experience with video in newsrooms is that it just has to be this fully integrated model like you can't you can be a good video journalist but to be a great video journalist, you have to work alongside like other brilliant journalists around sort of the newsroom and collaborate. And I think that, you know, if there's one thing that can sort of be said for a pandemic is people probably aren't collaborating as much as they were previously. And that's That's definitely going to be a problem for video in all areas, but especially video.
3: I mean, Paul, do you think uh, newspapers would have been better off investing more in podcasting? You know, everyone's now trying to be the daily, aren't they? But if they'd have all done that five years ago, it's cheaper.
2: Well, it's interesting the Evening Standard thing because I think video for the Evening Standard is a problem because the thing about video, of course, is that you speak much slower than you can read. And one of the good things about the Evening Standard is they have some quite good columnists and their editorial pieces are quite well thought through. Some of the analysis is quite good. The financial analysis is quite good. And the entertainment section is also quite good. And you'd never get the same number of words or the same amount of journalism into video in the time you can read it on the tube if you're reading the Standard on the way home. So in that sense, it is a product that has a a meaning if you are on a commuter train and you've got that regular journey, you want something to fill that journey. In that sense, it is a good product to have with you because it gets you made to be quite quickly. I think the podcasting is really interesting because, of course, podcasting doesn't require you to have an internet connection. I mean, the problem with going digital, of course, is we know there's some Wi-Fi on the tube, but it's not ubiquitous by any means. You know, it stops in and out at different stations. So you couldn't rely on actually consuming an evening standard digitally at the moment with the current Wi-Fi provision. But a podcast downloaded listening offline would be a really good idea and I think it's a shame they haven't done that and that could well have done well for the Evening Standard uh,
3: And Alex Carla, the editor of the FT has been talking about the difficulties of journalists working remotely too and did you see what she said and do you uh, recognise the concerns she was raising?
4: She's, she said she was talking about the idea that it, it's this sort of collaborative effort and it, albeit that journalists get particularly in films get this view of this lone warrior and they run off and they spend time hunting through it but journalism is a is it is a team game and you know you um all of the spotlight stuff the, the film like doesn't exist if there's not those is it four or five people in that film i forget mm-hmm. like you need that many people working on it in that intense an, an, an environment i think she's wrong though but because I, I think it's not it's being remote and i'm gonna do the world's worst pun here so my journalism tutor we walked in the first day journalism is a contact sport and all, all good stories come from those back rooms and private briefings. And as much as you can do that on Zoom, until the contact trusts you, they do not say anything they could not be snapped in video doing. And that's a difficult bit. When it comes to the sort of office more generally, remote working is a good thing for journalism. It gets people out of that presenteeism structure of newspapers, which still in some newsrooms still exists. It gives people more options. I think it's tough that we can't have those brainstorms and add hot coffees, but that's true of any office. It's not journalism specific.
3: It's interesting, isn't it, Dawn, to think about it in terms of contributors, not just in terms of fellow journalists and broadcasters. Cause you know, I find this thing when I'm interviewing someone, on the one hand, if I'm asking them very intimate and difficult questions about something traumatic that happened to them, for example, if they're sitting at home in their own environment, they might feel more comfortable to open up to me. I'm not shoving a camera in their face. But on the other hand, without that eye-to-eye, face-to-face thing, you lose that reassurance that I'm here to help them.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think of it in terms of what yeah, what you would give to a stranger, a story that you would give to a stranger, if a stranger called me up and asked me about the most intimate, personal thing that's happened in my life, there's no way that I'm going to give the same account as if, They'd come around to my house, had a cup of tea, we chatted. I've realized that they were the type of person I'd be alright opening up to. It's just it's just not it's just not it's not the same. It makes journalism much, much harder. And, you know, video calls are great, but it it's not it's not the same as having that sort of human connection. And I think that um yeah, the contributor side is just as important as like the journalist having chats with each other and bouncing ideas. And I think the other thing as well um, sort of on this is I've never worked in a newsroom which hasn't been full of extroverts. Like every time we've done a Maya Briggs test or whatever, like 90% of the room of journalists are are extroverts of some description. And I think that, um, yeah, you feed off of other people and that's incredibly hard when you're, working from home is great, I think. But working from home for a prolonged period of time in a sort of gloomy pandemic, not not so not so creative.
4: I've I've experienced the opposite. Journalism journalists are really introverted. In my experience, what? Like when I try, call, when I when I try, when intimidated I
3: try. by you, Alex. <laughs>
4: <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? When you try and film them, everyone's like, right, who's going to present this for me? Who's going to do this for me? And, and everyone sort of ducks down and tries to hide. No one wants to appear on camera. No one wants to be this sort of extra. And I'm not sure if that's the office that I, offices <laughs> that I've been in, but that that's w- weirdly the opposite.
0: Hey, oh, That's so interesting because that's not my experience. Everyone's bounced in front of a camera and <laughs> given their all.
3: I wonder whether as well the technology means that, it sort of um, accelerates a conversation beyond the status it should naturally have. If you call someone or you video call someone specifically to discuss an issue, it sort of becomes an issue with a capital I. And to give you an example, Paul, just before this show recording, I spoke to producer Pete about something that was in the script. I called him and I said, I'm not happy about this. I think we need to ask, ask this in a different way. And immediately, I just felt like by the fact that I had to pick up the phone and call him rather than just lean across the desk and say, what can we do to tweak this? I turned it into a thing, which it, it, it wouldn't have been. If we'd have been collaborating together in the same room, that wouldn't have felt like any kind of play.
2: Yeah, no, I, I get that. And I also think, you know, if you're in the office, sometimes occasions present themselves where you can maybe raise an issue, which might be a tricky one to raise, but maybe you're just walking by in the corridor or you're having a coffee together, or maybe you even bump into each other in the bathroom or something you know you can often find an occasion can't you to to make a point and it doesn't feel like you've gone out of your way to make the point but sort of you know in passing you can get a point across I think you do miss that um, I think the other thing about this is that um, a lot of organizations uh, and I'm working with a few now have said to me that although you know many people are getting on well with uh, home working uh, a lot of people do find it quite difficult I mean particularly if you've got multiple people in the same house trying to work off the same kitchen table there is a productivity issue. And a lot of people actually would quite like to get back to an office because they want to uh, get away from that situation and the stress of it. Um, they miss, obviously, um, colleagues. There's also you know, quite a lot of evidence that this extended lockdown has caused some mental health issues. I did a panel for the Royal Television Society recently on mental health amongst television um freelancers and you know there are a lot of people who are feeling quite stressed actually uh, not being in the office and not having the chance to interact and then the other thing is i talked to one boss who said the big problem he said with all this home working is i give autonomy and i expect accountability and I'm not getting the results. People are actually um, missing deadlines, not producing the same quality work and are having a little bit of a holiday. I suspect that the reasons that the editor of the FT have given may be what she said. I suspect there's a bit more, which might be about some of the points I've just made, but she's not actually said it.
3: Onto streaming TV now, and Queeby, the much-hyped mobile video service offering commuters short-form films on their way to work, is closing after just seven months. Um, Paul, I must say, I was expecting this, <laughs> but not yet. <laughs> I thought Queeby would probably limp on for a couple of years before they admitted defeat. Um, but you know, this was co-founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg, launched to huge amounts of fanfare, two billion-dollar budget. How did this go so wrong so quickly? Well,
2: yes. I mean, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, formerly the head of animation at Disney, who then went off to DreamWorks. Interesting he's plugged as a former Disney executive, not a former DreamWorks executive. But I don't know why that is. But there you go. $1.75 billion, huge amount of money. Um, I think the problem with this is that the... Um, The basic proposition doesn't really work. And um, I'm sort of going to put it in the context of Netflix because um, Ted Sarandos did a really interesting presentation at MIPCOM last week. And he was asked, you know, what is it that made MIPCOM so successful? And he said, we think of it like this. We're about competing with time spent on screen. Including YouTube. And if we're not compelling enough, we're not going to get eyeballs. And I think this is the problem with this. People didn't really care. It was a nice idea, but given they've got so many other things they can do with their eyeballs, you know, why would they stick with it? And the other thing he said, which is really good, is he said, We have to make shows that people can't live without. I guess too many people could live without this. And as a result, they've closed it. The smart thing is, you know, if you're going to fail, fail fast. And so they've failed fast. So they haven't sort of let it drag out, they've just got rid of it. So in that sense they've been very very smart.
3: And just just to recap the idea of Queebi was that you have short form snackable content that you watch kind of you know the the example that was always given was you know when you're in the queue at Starbucks uh, when you're standing at the bus stop that sort of thing and also if you tilt your phone from portrait to landscape it's all filmed for mobile first Alex, do you think that idea was a better idea pre-pandemic and they have just been stiffed by coronavirus?
4: I think it was a less worse idea uh, before the pandemic. But you need incredibly, you know, YouTube already exists. That YouTube already exists in this space. It already lives here. It's already doing this similar thing. And YouTube, because of its infinite nature, it has better ideas. And so you can you can put Liam Hemsworth... In it, and as a terminally ill man, or you can you can put well, Chrissy Teigen in it as a, as a judge in some way. Of, but it doesn't make any sense. Nobody's going to go for that. And so, if if the programs were genuinely brilliant and they had some sort of soothsaying creative genius at the front of it, it might have stood a chance. But but I th- I think ultimately it is a flawed product from start to finish.
3: But some of the programs, Dawn, were acclaimed, were nominated for Emmys, did feature talent of the caliber of Steven Spielberg directing. So I, I presume aren't all terrible. And what was quite interesting, I mean, I heard Jeffrey Katzenberg uh just immediately post-launch talking to Kim Masters on KCRW's The Business Podcast. And he said, I mean he has a knack for saying memorable things like this. He said, never in my career have I ever had a failure when I've got the content right. When I've got a quality product, it might take a few years. People might doubt it at first. I think he gave the example of Who Framed Roger Rabbit as being this huge black hole they sunk loads of money into. But eventually, if if the content is quality, people will come to it. Was he wrong? Is it actually the case that you can launch with great content and if the platform's wrong, people don't come to it?
0: Absolutely. I think it's an oversaturated market and what they've done um, is create something big and shiny and they've tried to be so different from their competitors in that you know it's a bigger price point or it's a lower price point with advertising or you're not allowed to have multiple users because it's a single-use thing. And actually, all of these things are if your competitors are doing them and they've got the market share, there's probably something to be said that they're doing it right. And yeah, I think that they will probably have success selling off all of those shiny programs to Netflix and whoever else that they're, they're sort of competitors that, um, that are doing well. But I just think that some of their things on their platform, like like the switching the phone around and the or the video switching with it, that's incredible when you look at it. But also, how hard is it just to watch something in landscape in the format that it was filmed in? I don't, I don't know that that's really a selling point. But
2: There's one other fundamental point, and none of you have mentioned it, and that is it's a subscription service. You've got to pay for it. It's 7.99 a
3: month. YouTube is free at point of use. It's easy. You go to YouTube. I mean, Hollywood will be looking for lessons out of this, not least because it's a lot of their money that went into it. I mean, I think there's money from Sony and Disney in Quibi. Uh, what do you think, Paul, they're going to actually take out from it? What's the what's the thing they're going to say? We mustn't repeat that again.
2: Well, I think um, the point was made earlier, and that is, Dawn said it, there's only a finite number of subscription video on demand services that you can actually support. All the research suggests the average household in Europe and in America is going to have about three and a bit services. So, you know, you're going to have to squeeze for space in there with Amazon, uh, Now TV, Netflix, Disney Plus, you know, is there room for you? The other model is to go the AVOD model. Now, AVOD in America is much more successful than here. Uh, There's Pluto TV here, which is growing, which has just been acquired by Viacom. They've launched in Germany. They're going to be coming our way. It's going to be a really interesting model to see whether VOD can support premium content when you've got YouTube doing what it does so well, particularly on short form and user-generated content. It's, um, you know, it's a tough business, and um, it just wasn't a compelling enough proposition at the price point.
3: I wonder as well, Alex, the extent to which people might say it was to do with the brand. I mean, it's sort of an unpronounceable word. Uh, it was a new word. Yes, the executives behind it were famous, but not necessarily to the general public and they did spend 63 million dollars on advertising apparently but it just you know if you if you search for quibi today it's mostly people saying what the hell was that i didn't even know it existed
4: <laughs> i that that's generally not the name so like uh, you talk to branding experts and and they always say whenever you try and come up with a new brand name everyone hates it the first time you say it so and you know the the stereotype uses like radiohead in fact even Net- netflix netflix is a terrible name for a and it's only because it's become this monolith that it that it is that, that now we forget how silly that name is.
3: Yeah, but the streaming um, video on demand platforms launched since have gone with names where absolutely everyone knows what it is. Apple TV, Disney Plus. Like, there's no doubt there, is there? You're going with the brand people know.
4: Uh, and I, I suppose you're right, but then um, Brit Box is pretty clear and that's a terrible name. Um, it's not the branding. It's more the idea of, I think, as as Dawn and Paul were saying, it's such a crowded space. People, unless there's an incredible reason to pick something new, why, why go there and and there wasn't there wasn't that house of cards moment there wasn't there wasn't that sort of yeah you know, there there's, there needs to be that one program that just does such a um, like normal people, for BBC Three has, has jumped it up, so and 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 in a way that now BBC Three is like the the channel of the year or whatever it is, it it, need, it needs that and it never got that. At least it didn't cross my path.
3: Is there is there something admirable in what Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, his co-founder, did? Dawn, in the sense that they recognised it wasn't working and have decided to give the shareholders back some of their money rather than spending it all and then trying a second round of funding. That's actually unusual, isn't it, to be fair to them?
0: Yeah, and I think that there's like a lot of respect there. You know, I think um, she said that they were ducking out gracefully now rather than stringing it along. And I think it's good to, you know, try something new. If it doesn't work, admit failure, adapt and do something else. And they've done that.
3: Well, despite Queeby's troubles, many big players in broadcasting are still focusing on streaming first, ITV have this week announced a raft of changes to compete with Disney and Netflix in the UK. Uh, Dawn, what are they? Have you seen what ITV have announced?
0: Yeah, so they're going to consolidate ITV Hub and Britbox in-house to consolidate their streaming service model and commission some new things for ITV Hub.
3: So does that mean, Paul, that the commissioners of ITV's linear channels don't have the power that they used to?
2: I don't think so. I mean, I think you ought to put this in context. This is um, repositioning so ITV is ready for revenue growth in uh, streaming, but the vast majority of ITV's revenue still comes from its linear channels. And of course, remember many of ITV's biggest hits, you know, things like Love Island, Ant & X, Saturday Night Takeaway, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. These are live shows that you really need to watch at the time they go out. They're not things that particularly work well in a streaming service. The things that work really well in the streaming service are dramas and documentaries and so on. So they've still got to continue with that because that's how the advertisers uh, will continue to be attracted to ITV. And that's where they get most of their money from still. Advertising is still the single largest source of revenue for ITV. The other thing to say is this is to some extent a cosmetic thing, because if you look at BritBox... Um, all of the um, technical services that make that BritBox is hosted on the back end of ITV Hub. It's all the same people who worked for ITV. If you talk to the technical people at BritBox about the service and the platform, you'll get an ITV email address and you'll talk to somebody who's in ITV. And then BBC is doing the content stuff. So in a way, it's just sort of putting a bit of a wrap around what's already happening, um, which is actually integrating
3: both ITV Hub, its streaming service there, and also BritBox, which is a joint venture with the BBC. There's bound to be an internal conflict, though, isn't there, between ITV Hub commissioning exclusive content that won't necessarily play out well on live TV, so quality drama, let's say, and BritBox intending to do the same thing, and or at the very least expecting that when ITV broadcast stuff like that, it will be on BritBox afterwards, which presumably if it's exclusive to ITV Hub, it won't be. I can imagine some pretty, you know, fraught conversations around that. Yeah, no, you're
2: totally right. I mean, as was made earlier by, uh, you know, my two colleagues, there's no, um, at the moment on BritBox, there's no sort of Mandalorian moment. There's no House of Cards moment. Um, there's no glow moment. Um, and they haven't done so. I mean, they're going to have to be brave and put some really big title, you know, new title onto BritBox and give it first window on BritBox, not put it on the channels first and then put it on BritBox the second uh, go round, or maybe a third go round in the case of the BBC because it goes on iPlayer first. Uh, they've got to actually say it going to go as a premiere on BritBox. And until they do that, BritBox is not going to become a really potent service. I fear for BritBox. I do not think BritBox is going to
3: survive personally. But let's see. In the UK incarnation, though, you mean, right? Because it does have an audience of expats in the US and Australia, doesn't it? Well, it's not launched in Australia yet. It's it's about to launch in Australia.
2: It's in the US at the moment. It does get an audience in the US. It's a small um, and fairly loyal audience in the US. In the UK, I think it's going to struggle, but I think it's going to struggle too in Australia because, you know, Netflix has gone in there and done an absolute storm. And all the other services that were in Netflix in Australia before Netflix arrived have been squeezed horribly by Netflix. So they've got to um, improve their proposition. Otherwise, they're going to get away with Queebee because it's just not compelling enough to pay money for that service.
3: And Dawn, as a producer, is it kind of confusing to have all these different controllers that you pitch stuff to or is it quite liberating because in a way like you know if this guy doesn't like it maybe this woman will
0: (laughs) yeah I think that that's how most commissions work isn't it you've got your big idea and you keep going until somebody loves it um I don't think it's necessarily confusing but from a producer perspective I guess it offers more opportunities to pitch to somebody who you're in you know aligned with or you know different um execs have different criteria that they want to fill and like that's that's a good thing sometimes if you're just going to one person at the top of the pie and they don't like whatever form of programming you're offering them then then it's always going to be the same stuff that gets through so maybe it's maybe it's a positive thing just
3: to gossip about the cons though alex because that's the show we are i mean at the bbc for example um the money being diverted into bbc sounds in audio terms is sort of visibly resented by people who work in traditional radio. They no longer know uh, whether they can make something happen or whose job it is to make something happen, and they're upset because they have half as much money as they used to to make the same programmes that they're expected to. You could imagine something like that happening in ITV2 now.
4: I think the BBC Sounds one is is difficult because the BBC has a finite amount of money and, and there's no upside for them making more or better because there is no... Unless they're doing a global show, there's no getting that money back. When it comes to ITV, it's a case of they have a huge opportunity here. And, and this is true across iPlayer and across across other places, of you use this place to develop new voices, to, to, to to commission challenging, brilliant, wonderful things. Like now suddenly the TV industry is copying fleabag. You can't move for someone mimicking or mocking that thing. You look at what normal people's done, that stuff does not get commissioned necessarily 10 years ago. If ITV and the and the problem is with BritBox, like right? what well, your flagship show is spitting an image, which... It it, it it appeals to a certain audience, and I get why Trump's on it, and all of those things. But it's not this brave new world of adventurous commissioning in in a different format or with new voices. It's it's still a white man at the centre of that, and it's still made made
3: for dads. Well, I must say, I did get a BritBox subscription to watch Spitting Image, and the next thing on my watch list after that is Bride's Head Revisited. So, <laughs> pretty much sums <laughs> up exactly what and, you're saying.
4: <laughs> and, and that's the thing; they, they could they, they there are so many brilliant writers, so many exciting people like doing wonderful, brilliant, exciting challenging things. Netflix took a jump on this and, and they commissioned so many brilliant things. ITV has to, and Britbox has to do the same.
3: Yeah, well, Matt Ford's Keir Starmer is good, but I, I take your point. Uh, sticking on Netflix, actually, Dawn, they're investing in UK programming a lot, obviously, but now with some new reality shows as well. Do you have those details?
0: Yeah, so Netflix is making good and it's promised to move into the reality um, sort of arena. Um, I guess it's probably off the back of lots of the American format shows in that reality sector, like Selling Sunset. And now it's going to be um, commissioning new competition series um, Jet Set, which is a working title from Studio Lambert. Um, yeah,
3: it's not Eamon Holmes on the road, is it? It's just a coincidence <laughs> that it has the same title as the National Lottery Game Show.
0: Let's... Let's hope it's something different that Netflix are bringing to our screens.
3: It says here, according to Friend of the Pod, Jake Cantor's exclusive article about it for Deadline International, the format will fly contestants to a tropical location where they will commune and compete in a series of challenges and dilemmas. I don't know what commune and compete means, but it sounds like a parliamentary phrase. <laughs> but anyway, we're looking for a Love Island type content appears to be what Netflix think people want. Do they, Alex? I mean, you do get that on Linear Telly.
4: I, I think they do, right? So we, I, I think there's two things to this. One thing is, yes, it is what people want. If you look at the success of Love Island, we all thought with Big Brother finishing, we always thought that was, that was the end of those reality formats. Yet it seems to. Ha- Year after year after year, there is this new sluts, new tweak to the format, and it goes great guns. It's also incredibly cheap to produce. You have, you don't have those big name stars except for the one presenter. You don't, and you, you can make stars of these people. And you, to at least a certain extent, earn the intellectual property copyright of, of these people's image. And it's if you get the format, you can create 10, 15, 20 formats all we need is one to bite and suddenly you've got who wants to be a millionaire and you're ser- selling that format to country after country after country to language after language and you're made.
3: It's also quite interesting, Paul, that without the sort of um, public service broadcasters getting involved and saying that there needs to be some quasi-scientific mission to this stuff, you know, the what if behind uh, the ideas of all these shows is basically what if we get some really attractive people and film them? I mean, (laughs) it's not not really anything else being explored, is there? Um, And people are fine with that because it's Netflix and it's just appealing to base instincts.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, Love Island was a huge success and that's what that was basically, wasn't it? You know, very aspirational in that sense, you know, quite nice to look at. I mean, look, Netflix is a commercial broadcaster and what they're about is subscriptions. And the key thing they've got to do is keep people there. Once they've got people in, you've got to keep on paying that monthly sub because there's no contract. That's their business model. So, um, you've got to keep offering something new. Um, what also Netflix have realized, I think when they started, it was all the American stuff sprayed out around the world. They've realized that actually local works really, really well. And they've got a strategy now to have more and more local content. And if you've got a great format and you can make a local version in the UK and in Spain and in Germany and all these different markets, that's going to really cement you in those particular territories. They understand that. Uh, and to the point that Alex made, these are really, really cheap formats. So you can make in every single market. Um, the other thing, of course, um, about this uh, is that... Um, uh, studios in Hollywood are, su- are suffering because of the heavy unionisation. It's very difficult at the moment to make anything in Hollywood. Much easier to make something in the UK. So it's a way of getting some new volumes, some new content on there without having all the hassle and cost and difficulty that's currently embroiling Hollywood.
0: And I think, I don't know, a slightly different point, but with Netflix, I'd, I could be alone on this. So I'm just going to put it out there. But when you pay your subscription and you pay 7 um, seven ninety nine 99 or whatever it is a month, um. I take a chance on things that I wouldn't normally watch. Now, I'm not going to say specifically that my standards lower, but my standards definitely lower when I watch something on Netflix. I'll watch a terrible film and I'll be like, well, I've got my money's worth. And I do wonder sometimes whether everybody's taking a punt on something like a, I'm not going to, not going to assume that it's a lesser version of Love Island if that exists, but like maybe people are taking a bit of a punt because there's a lot of time on your hands in a pandemic and you've already paid your subscription so what's there to lose
3: but the scale and scope of the productions is getting ever more epic isn't it and that's the other side of this you know it was a case wasn't it Alex that people seemed to kind of try around with traditional broadcasters or Hollywood and then when they couldn't get it greenlit they'd go to Netflix that's not the case now it's like if your idea isn't big enough, you wouldn't think to take it to Netflix. It's almost like Spotify with podcasters. They're obviously going for A-list celebrities. You know, there's no point taking your reality show to Netflix unless it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make. <laughs> I don't think that's wholly true. I think
4: Netflix has become the commissioner that's willing to take the risk. And the the thing with Netflix, more even more so than its, its competitors, is that it, it runs the data, right? If, if you are getting commissioned, it's a format that at least... In their formulas, in their algorithms, is most likely to succeed. And uh, as Paul was saying, like they they need to keep people and they need to get people interested in this and, and keep producing new content because their budgets are so high. What well, they've got three times the commissioning budget that the entire BBC has. That's where the production houses want to go first because there is more money there than anywhere else.
3: Their growth has slowed, though, hasn't it, Paul? I don't know if you saw Netflix on Tuesday. Were telling their investors that. Um, some of the 15.8 million subscribers they added in the first quarter of the year were were pulled forward. In other words, people that would have subscribed later got it because of the pandemic, and that explains why they've got fewer now.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they forecast 2.5 million for the uh, quarter three, and they actually got 2.2 million, so they were slightly under their forecast the rate of growth is slowing and it's um, it's not entirely clear why that is. I mean, they did incredibly well and piled on subscribers uh, at the start of the lockdown and they did incredibly well, as did Disney Plus too. I mean, their timing of launch couldn't have been better. It was entirely serendipitous, but my goodness me, they were very, very- the Yeah. <laughs> They were very, very fortunate. Um, I mean, Netflix have also um, got to manage the market here because remember they've got a balance sheet with a huge hole in it. They've got multiple billions of holes in their balance sheet. So this is all about managing the market and managing the investors so no one gets scared. And so they understand and manage the expectations uh, of the investors. Look, they're still adding on subscribers and they reckon they're going to be adding at the same rate as they were pre-COVID. So I think you've got to see COVID as being a, a blip up and they're now going back to their regular rate of activity acquisition. We'll see. Time will tell. Let's see what the next quarter say. As always, you always want another quarter to really tell. But I mean, they're they're doing fine. I don't think anyone needs to worry about Netflix.
3: There were some actual viewing figures as well in that report as well, Dawn. Um, American Murder, The Family Next Door is projected to have 52 million households choosing that title in its first 28 days. The Social Dilemma, 38 million. I mean, however you slice it, those are very impressive figures for documentaries.
0: Those numbers are extraordinary. Um, I feel like Netflix can kind of do no wrong at the moment. My sort of timeline of the pandemic has been different documentaries on Netflix that have come about, starting with The Tiger King, which feels like a million years ago now. But I don't know that it's that they are doing... I think they're doing incredibly well. I think that maybe just everything is doing very, very well because everybody's watching everything on offer.
3: Sticking with telly now, and um, until this week... Sky History had a series that had been dubbed the Bake Off for Woodworking, but it won't be returning. Why? Oh, because of the lovely Darren.
4: Um, Darren Lumsden. Who, who is a very heavily tattooed gentleman. plastered in um, neo-Nazi tattoos, yeah. Allegedly neo-Nazi tattoos. There have been some questions raised. There been, he has not responded yet, so yeah. he, has, he has got his... So he
3: has it written all over his face, and yet he's chosen as a contributor for a light-hearted factual entertainment reality show. How did that happen?
4: that's a very good question um so there was due diligence made and so the the eighty eight was the one that that tipped the producers off um that's on his cheek but so that's the white numeric uh the code for Hitler, Hail Hitler, because it's the eighth letter of the alphabets. Um, he said that that was the year his father died, 1988. It has since come to light that his father is still alive.
3: I mean, do you feel sorry, Dawn, for the programme makers? I should say that the show was called The Chop. Um, ironically. Um, do you feel sorry for the programme makers because they're obviously trying to make a kind of warm, light-hearted show in the style of The Repair Shop and presumably cast this man because he's kind of visually interesting and you wouldn't expect to see him in a gentle show like that and had asked him why have you got 88 written on your face and he gave an explanation should they have done more than that
0: I think that I do feel sorry for them in the original casting of this man because I do think that some people just wouldn't have noticed that tattoo I mean it's quite clear when you see it I think where my sort of sympathies um disappear slightly is how they've dealt with it since. Um so what I what it seems like is they've asked him what that 88 is for, they've taken it verbatim what he said, and that's it thing over, but actually it's it's not the thing over. And if their sort of research skills in the sort of casting stage were slightly less than perfect. I think that their research skills when they were investigating that claim should have been more watertight. And it didn't seem like it was that difficult to find voting records of his father um, to prove that he was alive. So if if journalists on Twitter can go out the channel and say, this isn't true, I think, it's, I think they could have done a better job post-casting to work out whether it was true or not. And then sort of deal with that appropriately in their sort of messaging afterwards, which I don't think they've done.
3: There's also been a bit of a branding blunder, I suppose, Paul, in that this show being broadcast on Sky History just sort of doubles down on the problem, doesn't it? I mean, I feel like if it was on Channel 5 or Dave, you know, you'd still have exactly the same controversy. But people wouldn't be able to say, but you show programmes about Nazi Germany all day long.
2: Well, I mean, the irony of all this is that people who are talking about this are far greater than the viewers of Sky History, I think, which is quite a small <laughs> minority channel. Uh, I, look, I think Dawn got it completely right. You know, they didn't do the research properly. They handled it badly afterwards. This is just really sloppy
3: production, in my opinion. All right. Let's um, talk about the radio industry um, because, well, Paul, the ray jars are still on hold. Matt Deacon must be foaming at the mouth.
2: Yeah what's he doing I mean you know his analysis he's got so no spreadsheets to play with yeah I mean the, the problem with rajar is it relies on face to face methodology someone knocks on your door says would you like to fill out a rajar survey and then you get this book and you fill out your radio listening for a year or so having had a question which is about what brands you listen to and they stick all the brands on stickers down the down the diary it's a very very old fashioned way of doing it the problem has been that there's this joint committee which organizes radio listening on behalf of BBC and commercial radio, and it's been like this for a long, long time. The problem with any measurement, of course, is that how you measure it impacts the results you get. And the radar figures are stable. And we we work on these figures. Commercial stations sell on these figures. That's where the revenue comes from. You know, the BBC likes to see its numbers because it helps to justify the license fee. So changing to a new methodology is really difficult. And there's been all sorts of work looking at different methodologies. And of course, you know, what are you measuring? Are you measuring hearing or listening? You know, and how do you make sure it's you listening, not somebody else? All these issues. And so they've stuck with this old fashioned means of, diary collection it's now really come to haunt them because of course they can't do face-to-face uh, radio figures what's interesting of course is that probably the audience figures are actually much higher than the figures well, probably actually- an
3: all-time high i mean this is the thing you'd speak to people about their personal experience and people are listening to the wireless at home for the first time in decades and also it's had a profound change on the stations people are listening to I'll give a simple example I would now probably, if I'm feeling a bit fraught from listening to the news, be more likely to listen to Mellow Magic or Magic Chilled or Magic at the Musicals. That is a change in my listening habits that's come about because... Uh, of what's going on that isn't being recorded anywhere. Uh, absolutely, that's to- totally right. I mean, I would say it's not so much about the reach, Ollie. I
2: mean, I don't think there's many more people listening to radio because actually most people do listen to radio. The monthly reach is 95%. But what it is, is the hours listen. People are listening to more stations and different stations. And, um, you know, I mean, certainly um, I've come across some of the dipstick research in other stations which are non-radar, and some stations are showing 20, 25, 30% uplift. In total, listening compared to this time last year, so they listening has definitely gone up. Some of the anecdotal stuff is that people actually are doing exactly what you say, and they're going to music stations to get away from the news. They're rationing how much of the the COVID news they get, and they're trying to go to music to to lift their mood. And and the more time they're at home, of course, they've got more chance to listen to radio, and they're choosing music to accompany what I otherwise be, you know, a depressing.
3: Um, news agenda. You know, you you can get too much COVID-19 news, I think. There's also this growth in speech radio, Dawn, at the moment. We've seen uh, the launch of Times Radio this year, uh, GB News on telly. okay, that's not radio, but nonetheless, it's 24-hour speech broadcasting. And that's something that you had a hand in with the launch of Monocle 24. Do you think there's enough audience to go round?
0: When we launched Monocle 24, that was in 2011, I think, um, and I think the landscape was a bit different then. I think that podcasts were absolutely, you know, a, a format that everybody listened to, but not in the way that people do now. I don't know. I think that podcasts and and radio and uh, speech radio audio listening is is an interesting one because, whilst I think that there are more podcasts, more speech radio that sort of waters down the audience. I do think that people are making more and more niched products. And then you have an audience that is so sort of captive and hangs on every word that I think that it's, it's a really valuable format, even if you don't have millions of listeners. Is there still a value for someone bringing out a niche, like take on the news or a podcast about something that's you know, a small group of people would be interested in, yes, I think that it's incredibly valuable.
3: What's interesting, isn't it? It seems possible. I mean, this is what Monocle did very well to sell quality speech content to advertisers. They want to be associated with it. I I noticed, Paul, that uh, Drive on Times Radio now has Land Rover as a sponsor. And uh, I'm sure in a not related thing, uh, now has Andrew Neil covering for John Pinar for the next two weeks. I mean, it's all quite blue chip, isn't it? And yet you'd imagine their listening figures won't be there. No, I mean, I'm disappointed
2: about Radar, actually, because when Jake was on the podcast a while ago, he asked me to forecast what the audience figures would be for Times Radio. So I've kept that uh, forecast uh, in my bottom drawer and have not been able to check whether indeed I was correct. I mean, look, I think Times Radio's audiences are quite small in terms of total numbers. I mean, I'm going to guess it's maybe a reach of 250,000, 300,000 people, but it might be a quality audience and they're definitely doing something different to some of the other services. Um, I can imagine that what the Times are doing is leveraging the relationships in the newspaper paper to get uh, Land Rover, part of JLR, on there. I mean, I think they'd be unlikely to get it on the sheer numbers alone, um, and you wouldn't get it on the sheer numbers alone because they haven't got any. So, you know, they're leveraging that. I mean, clearly, you've got Andrew Neil, who's a respected broadcaster. Great to have him doing drive time. I think that's a coup for Times Radio, and they'll have sold it on Andrew Neil and, and Times Radio and the brand. But in terms of the data, there is none. Okay.
3: There is just time to join the BBC's news teams where you are. Yes, it is a regional media podcast quiz this week. We are paying tribute to some of the long-standing regional news presenters forced to bid farewell to their red sofas, thanks to BBC Budget Cuts. You're buzzing with your name when you know the answer. So, Paul, you will say? Paul. Alex, you will say? Alex. And Dawn, you will say? Dawn. There you are. You're new round here, but you're, you're an old hand already. Uh Can you identify which legend in their own tea time I am describing? Let's find out question one. Who got their break by moonlighting as a football match reporter whilst working as a history teacher? Alex. Alex. I think that's Harry Gratian, isn't it? It is Harry Gratian, who is leaving the BBC after 42 years. He has presented Look North, the Yorkshire edition, since 1982. He also covered nine Olympic Games and won two RTS Presenter Awards. Here's question number two. Who started their career in radio producing a programme showcasing Cornish rock music? Paul. Paul. That's Justin Lee from Spotlight who is leaving, and he was on BBC
2: Radio Cornwall doing a Sunday afternoon rock show. John Peel would shake in his boots.
3: <laughs> that is correct. He is leaving the BBC after 33 years, 20 of them presenting Spotlight in the South uh, Question number three. Who managed to roll a car twice whilst filming a report about rally driving? Dawn. Dawn.
0: Roger Finn.
3: Correct. It is Roger Finn who has left South today after 27 years Six years before that at Newsround, which means we go to the tie break. It's all to play for in your knowledge of BBC regional news presenters who are currently leaving their jobs. Here's the question. Who got their lucky break at Plymouth Sound after the staff decided to fund a trainee rather than take a pay rise? Paul. Paul. Dominic Hill. It is Dominic Keel, and I think <laughs> it's only right that you should win that particular media podcast quiz. Uh, BBC East Midlands Today presenter Dominic Keel is leaving the show after two decades of service, which means the winner is Paul Robinson. Congratulations. Thank you. With all the oldies
2: and lots of old radio people leaving as well. I mean, so can I mention Keith Skews? Uh, you just did. Uh, and, and yes, I think you should. And
3: Roger Day and Paddy McDee and Graham Dean. Who do you think actually, out of all of those people, you would miss as a listener? I mean, they all had tremendous connection, didn't they, with their audiences? Uh, I like particularly Roger Day and Grimding, because they really love their music. And I, I grew up
2: listening to them on commercial radio. And so I still think they've got something. You know, they just, they, they just love the music and they bring records in from home and they talk about them and enthuse about them. And I, I love that in a DJ. Big fan, Alex?
4: Oh, they're, they're my favourites. I, I I definitely grew up listening to that. Um, alas, no. Although Harry Gracian is my like local broadcaster from yes, from when actually, I was a kid, so, yeah. so that's why I got that one. Yeah, he is, He has been around. He has been presenting that show longer than I have been alive.
3: <laughs> well, on that bombshell, thank you to Alex Hudson, Paul Robinson, and Dawn Kelly. Newbie, very promising debut. Thank you. Uh, if you like what we are up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then visit themediapodcast.com dot slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round that's themediapodcast.com slash donate and if you make a donation even a small one you could have a future episode dedicated to you you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website themediapodcast.com i've been ollie Mann, the producer peter price and the media podcast is a ppm production until next time bye.
4: wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: ACAST helps creators
4: launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.
3: So retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History?
0: Well, on Tuesday, the bizarre story of the Canadian quintuplets who became an international tourist attraction.
3: On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the recording of Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Yes, it really was in May.
0: On Thursday, the titan of chocolate who opened a theme park just for his employees.
3: And on Friday, we explain why cornflakes are meant to taste that bland. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. 10 minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.